recording, yeah. Uh, hello, uh, my name is AJ Lewis, and I will be having a conversation with Shannon Harrington for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans identifying people. Uh, it is July 26, 2017, um, and this is being recorded in Chelsea, Manhattan. Uh, hi, Shannon. Hi. Um, can you just like introduce yourself for the uh, recorder and you could just start out, tell us your gender pronouns and we'll start up by talking um, about where you're from. Well, my name is Shannon Harrington. Um, I've lived in New York since 1980. Um, I pretty much, I would say, uh, describe myself as, as a trans woman, um, which, but I, I don't really, really have any labels. I'm kind of just myself you know pretty much so um but yeah um i'm definitely interested in the trans community been part of it for for eons ever since i was young and a newbie <laughs> so mm. since the age of 16 so um i've been on stage as well as behind stage for most of my life so um that's kind of what i do i'm a i'm a wig master i make wigs um, I do a lot of Broadway work as well as uh, regional work, film and television, and um, have a good, you know, list of good things I've done over the years. So, uh, but I work in a in a professional kind of setting, but I work in a very um, open setting and not a, you know, I can be who I want to be. Mm -hmm. So, no pressure. <laughs> can you tell us um, where you're from originally and what growing um, up was like? I'm from Arizona, Tucson, Arizona originally. That's where I was raised. Um, my father grew up in the Bronx, so he was a New Yorker. And I came here uh, when I was 18, pretty much, and uh, got out of school early. Um, my father was in the, in the military. He was in the CIA, actually. And uh, we lived all over. So I lived in uh, Libya, Peru, Iran <laughs> for um, a good chunk of my life until I was in my late teens. That's when we came back mm -hmm. to the States. But we were always, Arizona was always our home base. So between his gigs of overseas gigs, we would always be at home and be going to school. And then, you know, for a year or two, we'd be somewhere else. So it was kind of in a like in a military setting because we were traveling a bit, mm -hmm. but um, he was a covert covert operative. So um, he worked for the CIA, but he had usually a cover, and he was an engineer by trade. So um, even in Iran, he worked for Parson Jordans, which was a copper mining company. So um, so it was pretty interesting. We I got to see a lot of things growing up. So <laughs> did you like Arizona? Oh yeah, I loved Arizona, um, and I went to school there. I went to the U of A, so um, yeah, so it was pretty cool. Um, it's hot, which I don't like so much now. So <laughs> I kind of don't really like hot climates as much as I used to. So, but yeah, it was great growing up there. I mean, it's beautiful, and it was it was the '60s, and it wasn't overdone. And our backyard was a desert basically, you know, and I grew up on kind of a ranch. I had, we had a good amount of property. We had horses and a couple of cows and chickens and, and, um, basically the backyard was a desert. We had a huge, uh, like, well, it's kind of like a wash, but it looks more like a river in our backyard. And 
just grew up there. I have two brothers, um, older, I'm the youngest. And um, they're actually, uh, one brother's in Sacramento, California, and the others, um, I think, I'm not quite sure, because we haven't spoke since my mom passed. And he's a Mormon, so <laughs> we don't really speak too much or get along too much on a lot of things. But um, we kind of had a falling out when my mom died, and he thought he should get something that was going to my other brother, Tim, and I took my brother Tim's side and not his, and he has not spoke to me since. So. <laughs> but uh, nothing lost. He was a little controlling as a, as a child anyway, and always was doing things to screw with me, you know, growing up. He would do things like um, call up my counselor in high school and told him I was on drugs and I'd never done a drug in my life. Um, let's see, he outed me to my mom when I was first doing my first drag shows. So he borrowed my car, which I let him do, and he found my drag in my trunk. So so he outed me to my parents at the same time, but you know, he expected them to be freaked out more, but they really weren't, so. <laughs> and I think you mentioned, you described yourself as like a trans noob when you were like 16. Oh was yeah. Was that sort of when you started? Yeah, that's when I kind of first started doing shows, mm -hmm. you know. Um, it was a club called Jekyll and Hyde. <laughs> was That was in Arizona? Or? It was in Tucson, Arizona, and it was on Miracle Mile, which was kind of like, and it was an, a disco. It was a disco club, and I did my first sort of um, sort of a, a contest, basically. And I got runner-up, and but I should have won. <laughs> and from that point, you know, I kind of got into the sort of the scene with the queens that worked there, and they were like very motherly and very motherly hen, and they wanted to show me, you know, how to do it, how to do it right, you know, and there was this one queen, her name was uh, Danny, I think it was Danny, I'm not sure about her last name, but she did Judy Garland all the time, and she goes, you gotta wear pan stick suntan, and you just gotta put it all over your face, and you wear three pairs of eyelashes, and so it was kind of like, and I'm pretty pale as it is, so suntan was like almost like, you know, like a mocha for me, you know, it was like a little heavy on the color, but, um, but it was kind of great, they kind of took me under their wing, and I did that for a bit, and made some money doing that, and uh, I was in beauty school at the time, so, um, but Arizona kind of has its limits. You can only do so much, and I was kind of just itching to break out, to go somewhere else, to live a life, and my dad was from New York. Um, I had a college roommate that was from New York, and I was just like, maybe I should go. My best friend wanted to go to San Francisco, and I was like, oh, I want to see New York. So I kind of came here. Um, Ended up in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey with my roommate Joanne and her family. <laughs> and you came here like around 1980, is mm -hmm. that right? It was 1980 and no job, a couple of hundred bucks in my pocket. And uh, decided they actually put me up for about a month, uh, paid rent, uh, stayed in the maid's quarters, <laughs> big house. Um, they were quite a character. Joanne was quite a trip. She was always, she was never happy unless she had a real major problem. But um, their dad, he was like, I hate, he was a real flaming queen at the time. Always wore big fox coats and big visor sunglasses. So <laughs> uh, her mom was anorexic. You could always hear her coming around a corner because you'd hear the squeaky wheels of her IV. 
she'd always have this little ivy with her and she'd come around the corner and she was the sweetest lady. I really, really liked her. Um, her brother was totally cool, but he was into heroin. But he was the most fun because he was more relaxed than anybody else. So, <laughs> um, But he was, he, it was kind of a, a tense situation, but I didn't stay there very, very long. Ended up um, going through the, the roommate ads and, and found a place in Brooklyn. Where, where in Brooklyn? Oh, it was Flatbush and Parkside. So it was yeah. not the most best area, but I was, you know, like when you're young, you have nerves of steel and nothing phased me at the time. And I had a, a blonde, bleach blonde flat top, wore a lot of eyeliner <laughs> and big, heavy black like coats, big wool coats or leather jackets. And nobody ever bothered me. Nobody ever gave me a hard time. Even the people on the block would be like, are you okay? Do we want to just walk you? And I'm like, no, I'm fine. And so they always kind of looked out for you, even though it was a kind of, it was a high crime neighborhood at the time. It was kind of still safe. It was kind of weird because you're a part of it. That's so took the D train back and forth. So what, what demographically, what kind of neighborhood was Flatbush back then? I don't know. Um, mostly black at the yeah. time, you know, black, mm-hmm. Hispanic, um, occasional you'd see, um, Asians and white people, but not, not really so much. Mm-hmm. And, and I didn't find it hostile either. I, I lived in a beautiful brownstone that was um, my roommates and we each had our own bedroom and it was like about three floors so it was quite nice but it was just getting around you'd always have to take that D train you know did you take the D train to like hang out in Manhattan oh yeah all the time that was the place to hang was go to the city go to the village so it was kind of like um, so that's what we did we you know but at the time I also like I needed to get work so and initially I did get work even before I left New Jersey I started working at Bloomingdale's for Baroni Cosmetics and um, I was a makeup artist I did hair and makeup back in Arizona so I was like I was licensed there so I decided to get a license here in New York and continue doing hair so um, I did makeup there worked for a couple of years um, met the most incredible people I think one of the most incredible one of the first persons his name was Tony and um, he was my uh, co-worker and he took me to places like the pyramid and the anvil and and all these great places that were a lot of fun and really crazy at the time so everything was very cutting edge everything was like um, I mean the first time I went to the anvil he goes here take this I was like okay and it was a little tab of acid and we got there around 10 o'clock and we just by the time like that acid kicked in it was around 11 and we were just watching the club just fill up and it was just amazing and we saw the most incredible shows they were like um the MC. he was incredible i forgot his name but later on he did a lot of after hours later on and uh there was the amazing yuba <laughs> And she did uh, all Grace Jones stuff. And she was like a spider. She was like a big spider. She would come down the wall and do this incredible, you know, whole thing of Grace Jones that was just incredible. There was Ariel who did Cher. And they just did this incredible show like every night, every night of the Anvil. And of course, downstairs was the back room and the, the movies and all of that. But upstairs was like the dance floor and the shows and... It was a lot of fun. 
I met Freddie Mercury there. Oh. <laughs> and where, where exactly was the anvil? Oh, it was at the very end of 14th Street and the West Side Highway. Now I think it's a hotel. It's kind of like a comfort, uh, a comfort inn or something like that. But it's kind of this, it's all on its own. It's kind of this little patch and it still stands there. And the anvil was the first floor and the downstairs. And you sort of, you entered on 14th Street. So that's where you, and it didn't open till, you couldn't really get there. Like the best time to go if you were going there if it was like after three or four, that's when it would go all until the next day. People would be like, you'd walk out, it would be noon, so you'd always make sure you had your sunglasses, you know? And you'd go to the diner down on 9th Avenue and 14th Street and get yourself something to eat, but you'd see everybody kind of coming out of the end, just like, oh my God. <laughs> was that your favorite bar to go to in those years? Well, it was, it was a club, club, and it was more, at the time, yeah, it was a lot of fun, because they did like new wave nights and mm-hmm. things like that. But there was also like Danceteria and the Pyramid Club and Club 57. And then later on came Boy Bar. And so there were a lot of clubs to pick from at the time. They were everywhere. I mean, everywhere you looked, there was going to be something new coming up. So were like, do like Queens hang out at all of those? Every one of them. Mm -hmm. Every single one. Queens in general were kind of a very solid staple of nightlife. Mm -hmm. I mean, either we were behind the bar, at the door, (laughs) <laughs> or doing a show so we were in every aspect you know and there were so many people that I knew from that point that were just that they were either door people or bartenders or show queens or you know and just kind of worked in that realm so everyone worked a nightlife you know a lot of times but at the time I was working the day and the night so later on you know you kind of switch over so <laughs> but I was still doing the nine to five kind of like store hours kind of thing and and things like that so it was it was fun because you're young and you've got all this energy you know it's like nothing nothing really stops you you know you could be party all night and work all day and then do it again you know Mm -hmm. just like sleep when you can you know but there was always so much going on so there's always something to see art was new and everywhere and um Graffiti was a new thing at the time. Hip-hop was new. So, I mean, there was so much going on. There was so much. You couldn't sit still. You couldn't, like, not participate. So, because everybody you knew did. So, they were part of it. Mm-hmm. So, Was there any, like, do you, do you have, like, particular parties or, like, things you went to that, like, especially stand oh, out? We used to do um, Suzanne Barsh parties, for which were always really amazing back then. Because even before, she did them later on like even up to recently um but the the early ones were the best because they were balls they were like a big deal they were like something that people anticipated and and looked forward to and they'd have uh, like celebrities as well as everyone else so it was really kind of cool and it was like it was a parade of fashion it was a parade of music it was just everything (laughs) where did she have those parties Oh, God, let's see. Um, the ballroom, which was the one that just closed. Not that. The Rose. Uh, Roseland was one of them. Um, the Saint, which was another place. Um, but usually it would be just a venue. It could be, um, oh, it was a great party at the World, which is a club on Avenue C. That uh, was kind of like a big ball. It really was. Where you'd sort of compete 
So, um, and and her kind of takeoff was from the early stuff was like Paris is Burning, for instance, where um, those were really happening. Those things were really going on, and we would we'd go up after we'd work all night up to the Elks Lodge in Harlem off 125th and get there around like 10 o'clock stay there till 8, 9 at night and it would just be a show it would be a constant show and it was a ball and it was a competition so it was just like you know you do your walk and stuff and it was just amazing to watch I mean they just they had different categories and you know femme realness and femme real realness and just it was just amazing different houses different things Mm -hmm. so later on I kind of participated but at the time I was like um one of the few light-skinned girls (laughs) around so it was kind of like you were kind of drawn between should I compete should I compete you know it was always that kind of fine line Mm -hmm. so uh later on but at the time, I was like being such a newbie to the scene at the same time. It was more like just kind of kick back and watch and see how things go. But pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> like what what kinds of houses were there? I wonder if you could just like tell me a little bit more oh, about House of the... Extravaganza. Mm-hmm, there was, yeah. um, God, there were so many. Uh, oh, there's just some of them, but... Uh, there were quite a few that I can think of, but but a lot of oh, Saint Laurent, House of Saint Laurent. Um, they always had a name like a designer named Chanel. You know, they were always kind of like that, and there'd be like groups of people that belonged to it, and sort of it was like a family. It was a family for them as well. I mean, um, it's a little different, especially with you know like people of color at the time. It was more a way to have a family uh, you know kind of support you and help you out and there was a mother of the house there was you know everyone that kind of like they made their own outfits or clothes so they you know they put you in the competition that they wanted you to go into so it was really kind of cool it was really interesting yeah. to see it firsthand <laughs> Um, can you like tell me a little bit more about what it was like sort of being new in New York City and like meeting other queens and sort of like coming into that what, like um, scene you just kind of it's just amazing how you kind of gravitate toward each other in a lot of ways because everyone that's here is usually from somewhere else and somewhere else where they weren't necessarily welcomed or had friends or could make friends or had a club to go to so it was kind of like it was like instant recognition. It was kind of like, oh, you know, and it's like, and you just kind of gravitate and you just sort of, no one is your enemy. Everyone is your friend at a moment, you know, like everything is new, everything is fresh. So you want to be part of it. You want to like join in, so. <laughs> was there anyone in particular who was especially important for you like early in life, like late teens, twenties? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, too bad they're they're not here anymore. But um, yeah, some of my best friends at the time, like Dale Lahan, who was another hairdresser that I worked with, and he was incredible. He was he was older and a little more experienced with stuff, and kind of took me around. And then there was you know Tony and George, and and these weren't necessarily queens. These were just I would say gay men at the time that kind of took me under their wing and said, oh you know, girl, you need to do this or you need to do that and 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 showed me the ropes and showed me how to get by and what to do and where to go and um 
how to make money, <laughs> you know, basically in the city, how to sell yourself in a lot of ways. So that's kind of what we did, you know, and, you know, you didn't really worry about things. Things were cheap enough to where you could have an apartment for 400 bucks a month, believe it or not. <laughs> and, um, and we always had roommates and things like that. So as you get older, you know, you sort of see things in a different way and, say, oh, and I have to get that job and I have to make this money and all of a sudden you get that responsibility and stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, basically it was just go from one thing to another. You kind of live from paycheck to paycheck, but it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't like you were hurting for money or hurting for work. There was always enough out there. So it was okay. (laughs) You didn't worry too much about it. Then later on, I think that kind of creeps in and you start thinking about it more so. And, and I met my husband in 87, so, um, and we've been together, you know, since pretty much. I mean, a year off maybe <laughs> in that time. But, um, but during that time, I met him doing shows, you know, stole them away from somebody else. So. <laughs> and her name was International Crises, which... I think you might have heard about her, so, and she was great. She was a lot of fun, and but yeah, I stole her boyfriend away, and I had to deal with the dishonor of that <laughs> for a while. But um, she got over it, and everyone else seemed to. So, and we're still together, so it must have meant something. So, and his name is Kenny. So. <laughs> Did you start performing like right away when you got to the city or? No, I didn't actually. When I first, I kind of left it behind, drag in a lot of ways. And I started doing, working kind of normal jobs like doing hair and makeup in salons and things like that. It was only until around 85 that I started getting back into doing more drag and, and, and being more into the scene in that way. But um, even before that, it was kind of like, I knew everybody in the scenes and they're like, hey, you know, you're pretty androgynous to begin with. So, so when I really said, okay, I'll, I'll start up again. And, and it was at boy bar that I started again. And it was Paul McGregor owned it and Matthew casting did the shows and you might, you could find Matthew online as well as Paul, but, um, remember the movie shampoo with Warren Beatty? No, I haven't seen it. Well, it's about kind of a a rambunctious, horny hairdresser <laughs> who um, kind of has this sort of like a scope of women and everything that, and he had a salon and he was quite famous and that was Paul McGregor. And in fact, the movie was sort of based on his life. You know, he had drive up in a rolls. This was the old boy bar, but actually boy bar was prior to boy bar was his hair salon. Mm where um, he invented, like for Jane Fonda, for Clute, he did that shag, that was his thing. So he was the inventor of the shag. <laughs> and he had a line around the block for people that just wanted to come to his salon, so. But he was great, I mean, he was this, he was older at the time, but even, even then, he was in his 50s, he was always on roller skates, has about 10 kids <laughs> straight, 
but he he ran this incredible gay bar that was just incredible, and he loved us all like uh, his own kids in a lot of ways. So, right. Boy Bar was in the East Village, is that mm-hmm. right? Right on St. Mark's between Second and Third, so it was right in the middle of the block. Mm-hmm. So it was actually his old um, his old salon that he converted, and he had um, an apartment upstairs, which was a small apartment toward the front, but then there was a bar upstairs, a bar downstairs and um, a big stage uh, and a big dance floor downstairs. And then there was kind of a lounge more upstairs, so. And it opened around when? Oh, I would say 85. And then um, I became Miss Boy Bar in 86 because they were bugging me like, oh, you should do it, you should do it. We're gonna do a contest, you should do it. So um, for Halloween one night, I came as, as Marilyn Monroe and they were like, they were a little, oh my God, <laughs> they were like, you look incredible. So I'm like, I'll get over it, you know, like this. And kind of, kind of worked on the outfit the whole bit. I had blonde hair at the time, so it was easy to kind of work my hair into anything. So um, it was, it was a lot of fun. So they're like, you have to do Miss Boy Bar. So they kept bugging me and bugging me. So Matthew goes, yeah, you're going to do Miss Boy Bar. So so um, we did this whole competition, and it was with Connie Girl, Glamamore, and a whole slew of a bunch of others, and, and I won. I became Miss Boy Bar. And for that, you were able to get shows and start doing your own shows. So from that point on, then I started doing shows at Boy Bar. And what, what, what did you do for the competition to become Miss oh. Boy Bar? <laughs> I did... Um, well, there's this whole thing where we did like swimsuit and hair and all this kind of stuff. But I did um, Debbie Harry's uh, Blondie's Ripper to Shreds. <laughs> and that was my, and I wore latex. <laughs> and I had a big, uh, big giant bouffant hairdo and I had a big huge red bow that came out about this wide in the back of it. And I had a latex skirt that was about this long. <laughs> And I had on um, what we called uh, Marley high heels. They were the English high heel that had a needle nose and a five inch spike heel. So, <laughs> and I kept snapping my skirt. <laughs> and that's when one judge goes, when you snapped your skirt, I knew you'd won. So, <laughs> so and from winning, you got your own show. So and in fact, my first show was um, Welcome to My Trailer Park. And it was, uh, I had, uh, International Crises to, uh, was my first show guest. So. <laughs> Can you tell us more about your show and about her? Oh, wow. Crises was always kind of fun. She was, she was very motherly in a lot of ways, and she felt as though she should be to all the young queens in a lot of ways, because she was about, I would say, about a decade older than us and had been around for a while and was stunning. She was drop-dead gorgeous and... Um, real tits she had her silicone tits on and curvy and and gorgeous and actually she is in the queen so you might look for her in that movie because she actually is one of the young queens in the queen so um she has a little gap between her tooth so you might recognize her from that but um she was a lot of fun she was uh, amazing she did uh, a lot of great stuff with spotted jewelry and um she also did with Nick Nolte her first film and I'm trying to think of what it is and she gets murdered in the film 
but she was actually sort of groundbreaking before uh, RuPaul came along. She had done so much stuff. Let me actually ask my husband. <laughs> Q&A. Q&A, yeah. And she was in also, there's a documentary on crisis called Split. That, um, actually, that's my apartment. It's so, if you see the apartment in Split, it doesn't look the same, but that's my apartment <laughs> on Cornelia Street. So, um, so yeah, I mean, Crisis was kind of groundbreaking before anybody else. I think she'd probably been one of the first queens to get a major role as a queen in a, in a major movie. And that kind of get her, got her into SAG. And she started kind of doing stuff, but um, her life was shortened because of cancer. And after, actually, she died before Q&A came out, so... So it's kind of a kind of a sad thing at the same time, but she would have been something, that's for sure. <laughs> she would have been something we'd all been proud to go, that's my sister. <laughs> but um, I mean, the fact that Kenny and left her for me and was kind of kind of weird. She wanted him back, and he didn't want to go back, and I was kind of a bitch at the time and didn't want to give him up so <laughs> but um you can't make somebody say if they don't want to and and she went on to do so many other things as well so even before she had passed away and Kenny was by her side when she was sick most of the time she took care of her so um I never felt like it should be any other way so <laughs> but um yeah, it just kind of miss her in a lot of ways. Makes you think about her. She looked like Rita Hayworth. Big red hair, beautiful smile, just amazing. So she was very motherly. <laughs> but um, after, after Boy Bar and stuff, I kind of got back. That's when I met Lee. That's when I started working at Lee's Morning Girl because after Boy Bar, I was still doing shows and stuff, and I was still, but I wanted, like, needed income. You needed a good job. So I started working for Lee, and but, I and I found an ad. Uh, and I answered an ad. I, 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 really, I want to hear about Lee, but I also want to hear about Welcome to My Trailer Park before we <laughs> move on to Lee. <laughs> well, this is funny. This is actually a funny thing to say about Crisis as well, because she was so New York. She was so New York, and she grew up in New York. And New York was her life, you know, pretty much. Um, and when when I, and I was kind of like, it was after New Year's, and Matthew called me up and he goes, we have to name your show. So, and I was like, I mean, hungover from New Year's Eve, and I go, welcome to my trailer park. I was like, that's it. And he goes, that's going to be your show. And I'm like, great. And it was kind of like when you think of like, um, kind of like, uh, white trash meets sort of like um well basically trailer parks are everywhere in Arizona so uh, and it wasn't like your you know upper breed kind of like upper epsilon of society that lived there but it wasn't your down and out either it was kind of like they made these really nice trailer parks I mean like roads and swimming pools and, and little recreational you know little areas and saunas and all of that so it was quite nice but um, I kind of thought of it as more like 
really on that kind of a little John Watersy kind of to it. And um, Crises was like, what should I wear? I know it's the theme of the show and everything. What should I go? And I think I'm going to wear these red shoes and a blue dress and a yellow belt. Does that trailer park? And I'm like, girl, whatever you do, it's going to be good. So don't worry about it. So that was her idea of trailer park, was just kind of like gaudy and kind of tacky kind of thing. And it's more of a mindset, I would think, more than anything else. So um, it was just fun. It was just a lot of fun, and many shows followed. So mm-hmm. well, other kinds of <laughs> to things. know them all would be kind of like, oh, Lord. But, <laughs> but yeah, it was kind of like just kind of big hairdos, pointy bras, and high heels. So it was a lot of that. So. Are there, like, numbers or routines that you especially... Oh, yeah. Remember? I mean, you would have a guest... Uh, you'd have a guest star, but you would basically carry the show on your own. So there would always be a theme or something that you were doing for that. And usually it was a lot of, like, if you had favorites and things, because there was always... The audience always wanted you to do, you know, what you're known for in a lot of ways. So... Um, it was kind of good. I mean, I did a lot of Debbie Harry and I did a lot of Dolly and I did a lot of things that I did a lot of country because that's how I kind of grew up, you know, like listening to Patsy Cline and Loretta Lynn and, and all of that. So I kind of brought that old twangy country sort of back, which was kind of, it was kind of tongue in cheek because there were always these great sort of songs about you know losing your man and getting him back and, <laughs> and giving, or drinking and somebody else <laughs> yeah always hooking up with someone else and doing something else so they always had a great story so they were great for that so um so yeah i kind of did build my my shows around that a little bit more and i love big hair so it's just like the bigger the better and who had more bigger hair than 60s country stars so so it was a lot of fun. I mean, just doing them was great because, I mean, that's where you would focus all your time would be like from your show to your next show to, you know, what are you going to do after that? So it was always in a planning stage. But but um, there were always so many ideas to bounce off of, too, where Boy Bar was one thing. You could do something completely different at Pyramid or at Mars or, or things like that. Like how were they different? Well, a Pyramid was more like cutting edge it was more like avant-garde and and more extreme and and really kind of like klaus nomi kind of stuff or nina hagen like what would be an example for oh gosh just kind of things that were very kind of new wave and punky at the time like you're familiar with nina hagen yeah it's like it's kind of like um kind of like uh, where space meets kind of like um, I mean she had the incredible octave she would this incredible range you know that her voice so she would make her voice sound like something completely different you know not like a voice kind of like Ema Sumac would do so it'd be kind of like out there it was more like sound than anything else so you could build a show around that so entirely so um, there were great performers that would do it like Ethel Eichelberger would do some incredible stuff that was early on, but I mean, there were so, so many, you know, Frida, and there were so many other stars out there doing so many things, and so you could really kind of take that and, and run with it, and get as extreme and weird as you want, you know, and be a little more cutting edge, and that's kind of how we felt, because in a lot of ways, that was like, that was the time of our music, in a lot of ways, and um, hip hop was just kind of breaking ground and, and there was a lot of kind of cool stuff with that too and that came later 
with other clubs like The World and, and Mars and things like that. So you got to see different sides to everything. So, But um, it was kind of great because Pyramid was great because they would always, you could always have a job at Pyramid. You and where, could always, where was Pyramid? Avenue A and 6th Street. And it was uh, between, right off the park. Like if you went a little further down, the park is like a block away, like on the corner, like 8th Street. It's like where you'd be, and you'd just walk down to about 6th Street. But um, yeah, it was it was really different. And we'd dance on the bar, we'd go-go on the bar, and not much of anything else, really. <laughs> Besides lingerie and, you know, little g-strings basically so and the thing was it's like you never wanted to be at one end of the bar if rupaul was at one end because she's so tall and so big that she could actually hold on to the pipes above the bar and could walk herself from one end to the other but if you weren't tall enough to reach the pipes every time she would be bouncing on one end you'd be bouncing on the other so you kind of have to time it because the bar was only so wide and people on this side were ordering drinks basically through your heels to the bartender on this so you had this much space and made sure you didn't knock over their drinks at the same time so <laughs> was it like mostly men went to the bar and queens just performed or did queens like, um no it was kind of like it was a mix of everything um pyramid wasn't really the kind of it wasn't like you would say a tranny bar would be. It was kind of like a, a mix of everything. There were gay guys and gay women, straight women, straight men. It was a kaleidoscope, but it was all like very, you know, progressive. You know, every the music was new, the clothes were new. I mean, everyone was, you know, straight or gay, you looked incredible, you know, so it's like, and things weren't expensive, you know, you made stuff, you found stuff, you, you know, thrift stores were everywhere, we'd go to Williamsburg and just hit the thrift stores for like a couple of days and just buy tons of clothes and make things out of it, and I loved vintage stuff, so I was great with the 50s and 40s and, you know, and just, it was everywhere at the time, so you could find so much, so, and cheap. <laughs> what, what were your, your favorite bands back then when you were doing oh my god tears for fears i love them but there was some of the plasmatics um god lux <laughs> there was god the sick fucks which were really kind of, that was tish and snooki and they were great they had a store down on saint mark's it's called manic panic so um they were actually they started out with debbie harry so, and then they spun off their own thing. So there were like, there were a lot of like New York bands too. Um, and Magnuson had her own band. Um, there was just a lot of like, really kind of fun stuff. There was Dueling Bankheads, which was really a lot of fun, which was Clark and David Ilku. So um, there was always new stuff and, and new kind of fun stuff, so. But um, yeah, all the early bands were, they would play like the bigger clubs like Dance Interior and things like that, where Pyramid was more homegrown, I'd say. It was more like local talent more than anything. But the big venues would be like, you know, Billy Idol or Madonna would come and play at Dance Interior or The World or things like that. So it was always kind of fun. Bands always kind of changed so much, you know. It was more the sound that we were interested in. Mm -hmm more than anything and it was before techno and before anything else so it was kind of um we liked it because it was kind of like 
not too hardcore, but it wasn't not it wasn't mainstream. So it was something totally different, like your own niche, you know, and where you could look slick and look vintagey and look, you know, love that. So it was kind of like you were quite like extreme punk at the same time, which were which was a lot of fun. And we love those clubs, too. Like, you know, that was a lot of fun because then you could just thrash around and and be even more extreme. So. So yeah, it was it was a good mix. So, <laughs> and you mentioned that it was sort of like that, like you, you had. I think before we turned on the recorder, like that there was sort of like older generation of queens that were sort of more like oh, yeah. sequins and. Oh like, well, yeah. Well, that kind of was. Well, the thing was, during the eighties, drag wasn't a big deal. I mean, in fact, it was kind of being, kind of pushed over in this way for more mainstream to kind of take its place because even when even when I like we haven't talked about Lee yet but with Lee Brewster it was like when I first started working for him he was like well you know I never got too much from the gay community in a lot of ways because they don't really understand you know my business or my way of thinking as to you know how we're all really in this big sort of box together and that if you don't understand that, and um, and he couldn't really see why, you know, the kind of the straight gay kind of community at the time wasn't too open or accepting. And like he, it wasn't he didn't have money. He had money. He had a good successful business. So it was like everything was kind of good in that respect. But he didn't feel like he got the respect from them or the acknowledgement, because he would do things that, you know, they'd be like, oh, well, okay, um, but yeah, but we don't want you representing us kind of thing. And it was that kind of lines drawn in the sand that really kind of segregated us in a lot of ways. And it wasn't until later that that started coming together. And those walls started breaking down in the 80s. That was kind of leftover stuff from the 70s kind of stuff. And it was kind of like, because we had other things to worry about with AIDS and everything else. There were other things to worry about besides those little lines in the sand, you know? And I think that's what really broke it down in a lot of ways. But yeah, I mean, you could go to, um, walk into a gay bar in the Upper East Side in in drag and they'd be like, no, you can't be here, you know, and show you the door or wouldn't let you in at all. So, I mean, yeah, there were always that kind of line to where like you knew where you were accepted and you knew where you weren't in a lot of ways. So it was that kind of atmosphere that kind of made us kind of create our own mm-hmm. venues in a lot of ways. And in when and when we kind of started doing more drag was coming back into kind of the lime the limelight of, of the eighties. Because mm-hmm. we were dragging it back. We were bringing it back and said this is part of us you know this is how we see ourselves too we're not we didn't see ourselves as like these you know outdated you know judy garland types i hate to say it for me with my early mentors was we didn't want that we didn't want to be out there doing judy garland we wanted to be more cutting edge we wanted to be in your face <laughs> we wanted to be like yeah here it is suck it you know fuck so what you know it's like we wanted to show them as well that you know we're, we're a force to be reckoned with in a lot of ways and and we did we did because we basically the whole 
nightlife and everything kind of revolved around it. So, um, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like it was like a pretty big, vibrant scene. And I think that's why you couldn't avoid it or you couldn't really not participate because be swept up in the wave, kind of like if you liked it or not, Mm -hmm. you know. But it was kind of like, um, it was out there. It was like, we wanted to be in your face. We were were confrontational in a lot of ways. And we felt like we had to be. Because if we weren't, you know, what were we supposed to do? Like fade into the woodwork, you know? It wasn't gonna happen. (laughs) Not by any account, not to the people that I knew, so. And they were like, and they were angry, you know? It was a lot of anger going on too. Because there was so much that wasn't being done. You know, there was so much, there were so many people dying that, um, like I said before, I mean, you'd hear somebody was sick and within a week they'd be gone. Mm -hmm. And be like, what, how, when, you know? And it would just blow you away. And then you would think of the last time you saw them, Mm -hmm. you know? Do you you remember like what it was like in the like sort of initial months and years when like people started getting sick? Yeah, it was, it was just quick and, and they didn't talk about it so much my um my early friend tony um became ill you know and he hid the fact that he was sick and i was like what's going on and he's like well you know the, the, you know i've got hiv and he didn't last very long i mean that was the thing i mean um that's when bailey house sort of came around which was at the end of christopher street and my friend dale became ill and it was just so quick. And I mean, I would go with him to doctors and they were masks and gloves and everything. And hospitals didn't wanna, nurses didn't really look after patients. We did, I started doing stuff for God, um, God's Love We Deliver, you know, early on and going to, um, sitting with patients in hospitals and talking with them and, and um, just you know would see them just fading away and nobody wanted to touch them so that's why we we went families didn't want to know where they were or who they were and people that were there to help them didn't know how to help them. So it was sad. We saw a lot of people. Didn't make it. And that was hard. That was hard. So a lot of my early best friends didn't make it. And I always wondered what they would think how things turned out or how New York has changed, or how would they look at it? Would they see it differently? Or what changes they would have made, or how they all died so young. I mean, Dale was 38 years old. And I'm I'm 57, you know, there's so much more living that I got to do that I wish they were around. But that's just it, I think, because you learn 
you learn so much so young. You had to learn to say goodbye at an early age to see people just wither away with no help in sight. And you grow up fast. You grow up really fast. And you think if you can get through this, you can get through anything. And that's what keeps you going in a lot of ways. And I mean, you always think you've done your share. I mean, I didn't join ACT UP at the time or anything like that. But no, that's not true. We were doing things. We were doing at the other end of things. And we were still protesting in the street. We were still doing a lot of stuff. But at the same time, you just, you didn't really have a choice. You really just had to do something. You couldn't sit back. You couldn't see people die. You couldn't watch people die. And um, Dale was one of the first recipients of AZT. And he was staying at Bailey House. And because his roommate threw him out, his, his mother he wouldn't come and see him. He was from Florida. So um, his, those people were his friends too. And they cared for him and took, took good care of him, looked out after him. And they called uh, me and a few other friends to come and say goodbye. <laughs> when he knew it wasn't gonna get better, so. And we came, we had dinner, we had, they gave him like a last dinner. He lasted two more days. So I got to say goodbye. But that was the hardest part, to know that they weren't gonna make it. And you were gonna have to say goodbye. So, you know, you learn. You learn, you see the good sides of people. You see the bad. Mm -hmm. And it drives you on, keeps you going. Mm -hmm. Sounds like you did a lot to take care of each other. Yeah, it's... You try, but you know, when people are sick and they're angry and they get bitter and they're not the people that you remember because they look different, but they're also changed and they're, some people are very accepting and others are angry and mad and they just don't understand as to why. And they feel, they start feeding into all that, like maybe I deserve this kind of bullshit from everyone else saying it. And um, it's not the way it should be. No one should be treated like that. And yeah, you saw it firsthand and it was hard to watch and hard to see. And or you'd see somebody you know and they look awfully thin and they're like, are they okay? And like, then they wouldn't be around and then you'd wonder why. And so it was fast and it was quick and nothing was being done. We had Reagan as a president and he wouldn't even mention the word, you know, 
so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a great time. But at the same time, with all of that going on, there was still constantness going on, constant creativity and constant like movement, I think, in the community in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's how we got things done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Didn't give up. You mentioned that like Queens Lake put on shows and benefits. Yeah, benefits all the time. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about what that was like? Oh yeah. I mean we just basically get together and there'd be one of us that worked in a club and you know and we'd be like, Oh, let's do one here. Let's talk to so and so and you know, so and so's you know, out of work and they need money. So let's let's do the door. Let's see how much we can raise. And, you know, we would do a night, we'd do a couple of nights. But then we started doing bigger things and we started doing raising money for for God's love we deliver and other things and other places. So we did it on a bigger scope and and that's how we kinda started it. Wigstock kinda started that way. Oh, I didn't know you know, that. in a lot of ways, it was more as kind of a group thing, but it was more about awareness, and it was an East Village thing. So um, with Bunny, so it was, it was kind of, it was new, but it was in a, in the same sense that we knew that we could do it. You know, we knew that we could have a little bit of pull, and we could do this, and we could raise money, and we could help people out. So, so that's what we tried to do. Mm-hmm. Lord knows if all the money went to where it should go, but <laughs> but hopefully it did. <laughs> hopefully it helped somebody somewhere. So, mm-hmm. but I think it really did. Was there like a way? I'm trying to think of the right way to ask this. Um, like, was there like a like amongst like other queens and perf- like drag performers? Was there like a particular kind of relationship that like queens had to like the like a gays epidemic, or was everyone sort of like just experiencing? Well, yeah, it I mean. I mean, there were queens were dying too. You know, it wasn't just gay men. I mean, it was it was everyone. You know, so yeah. I mean, you'd hear girls that, you know, just became sick and that was it. You know, you didn't see them anymore. So um, during that time, though, during the eighties, I also worked at a club called Edelweiss, which was kind of like the real tranny. A real tranny bar, <laughs> truly. Can you tell us where Edelweiss was? Yeah, it was on Twenty Sixth Street, and Seventh Avenue was the original, I think. And Dino, who's a straight Greek guy, and it was his uh, wife's restaurant in the day. It was a German restaurant, but at night it was it was Edelweiss, <laughs> and it was a little of everything. There was like guys that loved queens and. And the queens that loved guys, like straight men, they would all kind of, you know, come to one area. And I mean, we had women, men, gay men, gay women. It was a little of everything. So late 80s. Yeah, it was like mid to late 80s. And it was a lot of fun. It was, I mean, I'd have John Waters at my bar at least a couple nights a week. And he would come in and and I'd be like... You come in and you hang out. He drinks Tom Collins. Maybe have fix him a Tom Collins. Sit at the end of my bar, which is in the back near the DJ booth, and he would go, "This is the best show in New York." <laughs> and he would sit there and he would drink Tom Collins and just watch the parade go by. He probably and it was st- quite a parade. He probably stole your material. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> really did. And I mean, these were like, and I mean, we had the gambit from working girls, like street working girls, to show queens, to straight guys that looked like they just got out of prison, to uh, we had a seat of guys that would come in because the garment district was close by, and they'd come in with a with a wad, like a, a cash wad like this, of singles, and sit at the bar, and all the girls would start lining around them, you know, seeing if they can get their attention, and they would just be buying everyone a drink, and have their little flash wad, and they'd leave early. They'd leave, like, by midnight, one o'clock, but they'd come in early. <laughs> so it was, it was a lot of fun. I mean, there was always a fight going on, too. There was always something. One time, um, Oh, this was kind of weird. I was I was walking from my bar to the front bar, and I bumped into this guy, and he um he like just grabbed me like that. He grabbed me by the arm, and I pulled away, and then he reached and he grabbed me by. I had my hair in a long ponytail. And he grabbed me by my ponytail, and he's and he tried to like knock me off my feet, and I grabbed the table behind me and I grabbed a beer bottle. And, and I thought, okay, I'm going to have to stall this guy until the bouncers from the door get to where I am. And I could see them moving through the crowd. And, and one of them's name was Nelson, this really big guy. And I could see him moving toward because he knew something was going on. So I thought, I just got to hold this guy off for a little while. You know, I don't know what he's going to do, but I'm going to hit him with this beer bottle if he comes any closer. So it was kind of like they grabbed him and they tackled him and dragged him out. And, um... Later, he took a trash can and threw it through the plate glass window of the front of the club. So it was just like, I mean, it wasn't every night that happened. And especially to me, because I was nice to everybody. But um, but it's, there was always a little turbulence. There was always something going on. Because it was not your average group of people you'd throw together. So, But it was always fun, though. And it was always a good time and always packed. So, And you were bartending also. Yeah, I was bartending. Did you have, like, a day job like when, by, like, the mid-80s? Um, at that 80s? time, I was, I was basically doing the night gig. Mm-hmm. And I was doing great. You know, I was making really good money there. So, um, And we changed locations at different times. So I still work there. But we changed locations at least twice. Three times, I think. <laughs> All in the same, like, area? No, I think the last club was this diner up on 11th Avenue in the 50s to late 40s. And that was the last um, big Edelweiss club that there was. And it was like an old diner that was kind of on its own. It had its own little corner. And uh, that was kind of the, the new club. <laughs> very slick and modern, like, mm-hmm. very chrome, a lot of chrome in it. But... Um, Dino tried to do it downtown in the West Village later on, but I think, like, the moment had lapsed at that point, and that was, like, mm, 2000 or so. Interesting. Yeah, so it was, like, I stopped by to say hello a few times, but, um, but yeah, the kind of, that had faded a bit, but there were also other places. There were Sally's, which was, um, right, it was, like, in a hotel in Times Square area. That was also like a notorious tranny bar, sort of, and kind of shady. It was a little, it was a little more um, street, it was a little more dangerous to go there than other places. But it was fun, you know. It was a lot of fun, and you know because I worked in in Edelweiss and I worked in clubs, like a lot of people knew me, so I could kind of bounce from club to club where I want to go and 
never have to pay for a drink or a door fee. So it's kind of it's kind of nice. So yeah, so you'd bounce around, so you could save your money. So. <laughs> And were, like, most of the other girls that, like, you knew and hung out with, were they also, like, nightlife workers? Yeah, like, either they were working or... girls, or they were working showgirls, or they were working in a club, or mm-hmm. hostessing, or doing parties, and things like that. So there was always things going on, so. But it was, a, I mean, it was, the girls were kind of like a, it's funny, we all kind of came from different backgrounds and things, but when we were all thrown together, we were pretty much all the same in a lot of ways, I mean. We watch each other's backs all the time, and we're, when we see each other, we'd be just like, you know, like you hadn't seen each other forever. You know, you'd be like, oh, what are you doing? So it was kind of this, like a sisterhood, I think. You know, you would always kind of catch each other, you know, watch each other's back, get them into places they didn't normally go, you know. That was kind of the thing I would do. I'd be like, you know, take Ruby or Jessica out, who I used to work with, like, because they live in the Bronx, you know, they don't get to go to the downtown clubs or things like that. So I would take them out for a night and, and things. It was, it was kind of fun. Um, there was another one, Dorian Corey. Do you ever heard of her name? Um, she used to be, she used to always come to Edelweiss all the time. And I remember um, going with her downtown and sharing a taxi. And she was a big girl. She took up the whole back seat of a taxi, basically. And I'm like, over here like this. But um, she's infamous for, her story was, um, which I actually got it firsthand, to tell you the truth, was that after she had passed away, they, um, they discovered in her apartment that a body in a trunk in her closet that was mummified. So, I mean, she had wrapped it up, totally rock salt and it was a big steamer trunk and it was in her apartment and I remember her telling this story ages ago and it was um, somebody that tried to break in and then she actually took him out and put him in that trunk so and never mentioned it That's interesting that. solution <laughs> yeah it was that somebody that broke in her apartment and, and actually was uh, trying to hurt her I think but um yeah, so that was her story, and nobody ever found it until after she passed away. We always just thought of it as a story, but you know, <laughs> it was. She real. told you about it before. Like, oh yeah, that she that she, that she, she told it to me <laughs> personally, and you know, I was like, ooh, that was, was that like later after she had passed away, and it came out. I was like. She was very nonchalant about it, actually, when she talked about it. So it was like something that, like, oh, ouch, you know, that was kind of weird. Well, are there like uh, sort of tricks or tips or like sort of survival skills that like other girls or queens had when they were working? Or... Oh yeah. Well, always keep your money in a booby bag. That was always like, that was always keep your money somewhere else where you don't have your money in your pet in your pocketbook or anything like that. So yeah, there were always kind of tricks where to put your money. It was always good. <laughs> like under your boob, a little good. Don't move anything around too much because don't want to lose it. Um, I used to keep mine in my corset, like right here. Like right under your bra. So between your cleavage, because you didn't want sweaty money, so you'd always put it right here. So <laughs> but uh, yeah, just to survive on a daily basis. I mean, these girls knew what to do, where to go, and how to do it. So. 
And yeah, especially with men, they knew how to deal with men, that's for sure. So um, they always knew when somebody was like, you know, if they would be really interested and be a pain John or just be some guy that just wants to get laid. There was always that fine line. You know? So, but they knew the difference. So, yeah, Edelweiss was kind of like a, a working girl bar in a lot of ways, but it had a little of everything to it, too. So that kind of made it more special. So, was it, Did you have like a favorite place to work at? Um, well... I did. I really did like working for Lee in a lot of ways because um, Lee's Mardi Gras was really kind of special. Yeah, we could. Why don't you talk about meeting Lee Brewster? And okay. Um, well, I I answered an ad that he was looking for sales help, and this was in this was kind of early '80s, but kind of like no, actually, it was a little later. It was about '80s. Seven eighty-eight, and I wanted a steady gig from doing night jobs all the time. So, I was looking for like a day gig, and um, me and Kenny had just gotten our first apartment. So, just you know, paying the bills and keeping everything on the up and up. And he was working, so I was like, okay, I'm gonna get a day job. So, so I did, and I started working for Lee, and he was great, and. I think I think he saw a lot of himself in me. And this is at Lee's Mardi Gras. Lee's boutique, Mardi Gras, right. In the boutique. West, West the department Village, store right. for Queens. Yeah, it was big. <laughs> the tranny right? department store, we called it. Yeah, it was 10,000 square feet. We had a huge space. It was the um, third floor of 400 West 14th, 400 which West was um, the corner building, big building. And in fact, when um, on the third floor, we could always tell when the girls were coming down to work because that was a big sort of area, too, for working girls. Mm. Is because when it would start to get dark, they would come, kind of like, go, oh, there's Vanessa, she's coming down, <laughs> walking down the street. And they were all customers, because they would all buy their shoes. Where could you get a five-inch heel in a size 13, you know? <laughs> so it was like, they knew Lee's, and he had steel shanks that went through the heels so they could run in them. They're like, you know, if they don't last, run from the popo. You know, that was it. <laughs> so it's like, uh, we had one queen that she would always come in and her name was Christine. And it looked like an explosion had happened in her shoes every time she goes, I don't know what I did. It's like, it looked like the whole front of her shoe just exploded. <laughs> like, So she'd be like, and she'd come and she'd buy a new pair, you know. Lee would be like, oh, I can't take these back. You know, <laughs> So she'd buy a new pair. So we'd see her every like three weeks or so, you know. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the working girls would be, like, around when we'd be leaving work, they'd be coming in for work, so. Um, but they, they loved Lee. They really did. He treated them with respect. He treated them like, like paying customers and said, what do you need? What do you want? You know? He was more annoyed with, um, like, the gay guys that would come in and just shop for, like, Halloween or something because they would look around and then they're like, I know where I can get that cheaper, you know, and just be like, like this. And he would order stuff that would be, I mean, he had corsets and lingerie and dresses and shoes and wigs and makeup. He had everything in that store. And so when, when did he open, when did he start the boutique? He started it on, in the mid eighties. He did start earlier. I didn't come to him till a little later, but he started in the early eighties and the store was on 10th Avenue in the 40s and he lived upstairs and he had the bookstore as well with the with the shop with the store but the store wasn't as big 
It was kind of small, and then there was a bookstore kind of adjacent. When he got the place on 14th Street is when he got all this incredible space. So, so you know, we always had a good crew of people to work with. There was Robert and Ronnie and Terry, and um, there were just so many that kind of, that were good friends of Lee's, mm-hmm. that he had known for years, like Bibi, that he had known for years, who's assistant principal, you know, for for eons at the new school. I think she's retired now. But um, they were good friends of Lee's. So when when they were there, they kind of like worked with Lee. They would work with Lee. Like Tony Stevens was another one mm-hmm. that, that I worked with that was good friends of Lee's. And they all knew Lee in the earlier days. So it was like, and we would kind of sit back and hear the stories of like how Lee got started and what Lee was up to, because Lee didn't like to talk about it as much. And we would always be like, come on, Lee, you know, we know you, but we could do, we'll dress you, we'll take you out. It's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> he goes, because those days for him were kind of like, he felt like behind him, you know, he felt like, oh no, I don't know if I could do, you know, he would do the lace front wigs and he was gorgeous, you know, so he wasn't really doing the drag of the time. So he would live kind of vicariously through us in a lot of ways, because we'd be like, where did you go? What did you do? And, you know. But he would always take us out to dinner once a week to a fancy ass restaurant, places that we could normally never afford. <laughs> so, and he would take us like, "Come on, we're going to dinner." And he would like invite Kenny, you know, and invite my husband, and be, and we'd have dinner, and it would be like the old homestead or or uh, uh, la femme, like uh, Josephine's, or, you know. It would be like places where. You wouldn't normally go, and you normally couldn't afford, but Lee could, and he would treat you to dinner, and it would be quite a spread. Mm-hmm. So, and he loved doing that. He was a very generous guy at the same time. So, so that's kind of what made Lee very special. I think I learned a lot from Lee. Mm-hmm. I learned about the whole. There isn't just queens or pre-ops or you know post-ops, and there's there's this whole gray area. There's a whole gray area of of straight men who feel kind of trapped and feel like this is the way they kind of like live themselves out to, you know, that will never come out or never, you know, walk down the street and drag ever, you know, in their entire life. But he always thought, well, they're good because they purge and they rebuy everything. So it's like, (laughs) we kind of thought of it as the good side of everything, you know. But he'd be like, oh, you know, I've known him for like, she'd be like, Shannon, go and deal with him. You'll be able to deal with him fine. He's been coming here for 20 years. He looks around and then he runs out the store. So it's like, and they're always very nervous and they're always looking at a book like, you know, like, is anybody watching? Me looking at a book? You know, and then we had the one area in the store that were all the magazines and books. And it was this like separate room. And it wasn't really, I mean, there was, it was kind of pornography, but at the same sense, there was drag magazine that, um, that Lee had published. So it was kind of like the stuff that he had put together and had letters and places and, you know, where people meet and things like that, or discussion groups or um, TVs love things that go for outings, where they go somewhere where they can dress up for a weekend and be their femme selves, you know, pretty much. So... There was always things like that going on. And they loved that. I mean, there were there were guys that are 
that are attracted to queens and then there are guys that would want to be queens you know so there's always that kind of fine line they didn't want to really they weren't into you so much as they wanted to be like you so you were like their inspiration in a lot of ways so so they would come in and you would be like well this is what you need and you would outfit them from head to toe and some were, were long-standing customers I'd see every since I'd worked there I mean I worked there um for about four years initially and then I started working for um Patricia Field, and I worked for her for about nine years. And then when I stopped working, uh, Lee asked me to come back, and those were like the last couple of years of Lee's life. So, and I came back for that. So, and um, it was so funny because um, it wasn't really funny, but it was just like Lee was always like he always was trying to lose weight. He was slightly rounded, but not by any means overweight so he loved his diet pills so he would take these little diet pills and he would be zipping around the store like all the time and he would wear these little like little like penny loafers but he would always be shuffling so you'd hear him like the store so it was like always so hyper you know and there were things going on but he didn't know why, like he would get dizzy all of a sudden or lose his balance. And so we'd go to the doctor and they'd be like, well, we can't find anything. And then um, one day we came in and BB came in, I think first and Robert. And it was the night before we had just had dinner and we came in on us, we were always open on a Saturday and Lee had passed out and was on the floor and um, they couldn't really get him up, you know, right away. So we called 911. And he never really came out of the hospital after that. And it was cancer, but I didn't find it till much later. And it was a little too late for Lee. And it was very unexpected. I mean, because um, Lee's life was so unusual in the fact that he started his store and his business from his own apartment initially. And he sort of grew from there. He started dressing... Um, at, at an early age like he would dress uh, men that had called him up for ads and things like that but it wasn't necessarily it's not necessarily a sexual thing it's more of a kind of that's kind of what Veronica does in a lot of ways but that's how she knew Lee and that's how Lee started in a lot of ways so I think like it was kind of like passing the baton mm-hmm. in a lot of ways to Veronica from Lee and in that regard and and she took it to a whole nother level. You know, she started writing about it and doing things more on that. Where Lee was more on the business end of, of just about everything. But he was like, there's always different degrees of people. You know, there's some that are always going to be more comfortable with who they are. And there's some that aren't. So, but he first started doing balls and things. He did the balls very similar to the, the ones up in Elks Lodge and Paris is Burning. Those type of balls. But he would do... Um, kind of in Manhattan, like at Roseland and things like that, and he would emcee them. And he would bring everyone in from outside and do a competition ball, like in The Queen. Kind of, that's, I think, is where uh, Sabrina got a lot of that, was from Lee. So, <laughs> and he would be, he would like, um, he loved feather boas, so he had tons of feather boas in the store. But he would do this thing where, um, we saw like a, a little thing, he described it, because he never would show us any films and stuff. But he would like 
be wrapped in a boa from head to toe. And they would like, he would have somebody on the side and spin him out onto stage into the boa and then take the boa and he would be like, oh, like this. <laughs> he would do, and he would like, oh, tonight. And then he would like open the show, you know. But it was always like in a nude suit with spangles in the right places, you know. So and he would like, oh, and like the bow would fly off to the side of the stage. So he's a real showman in a lot of ways. So, and he learned, I think, that from the earlier things, like from the Queen and, and things like that for that era, you know, the 60s kind of era. So he did that initially when he first came to New York. So, Do you know why he like, stopped sort of performing and just sort of did the behind the scenes? I think he still? felt like he, it's, and I could understand it because you're not going to meet your own expectations of, of when you were 20 or 30 or, or even 40. Um, and he felt like he wouldn't, you know, bring it back to that. And like BB and Terry would go to Florida. I mean, not Florida, New Orleans every year for Mardi Gras. So they would do this, this traditional trip, but Lee would never go, although they, that he did go in the earlier stages of it. But then I think he just didn't want to do drag so much anymore. And you know, he's just kind of like, well, I've done it. You know, I want to kind of move on a little bit. And he kind of did the business end of it. But I think he did miss it. Because um, I think probably B.B. has his portrait. I think he probably does. She probably does have his portrait. B.B. Scarpy. Yeah. Has the portrait of Lee. Mm-hmm. Like, in one of his iconic photos. And it was a painted portrait of him. <laughs> like, kind of all spread out. Like, this, the hair flowing and... Feather boa somewhere in there, I'm sure. <laughs> Did you ever go to like New Orleans or like the Fantasia Fair? No, like I, d- I didn't. They wanted me to at that time, but I was I'm such a New York girl that, and there was always so much going on here for me, and I was kind of like, um, like me and Robert were the youngest ones, and like um, we kind of look a little like bookends, me and Robert, because we're small, black hair, blue eyes, and we always kind of like, oh, you know the one with black hair and blue eyes, and they're like which one (laughs) and I was kind of like they always thought of me like as more of a woman like they always refer even you know early on in life it was kind of like she or like there was never I never was one to you know correct anyone because I'm like it's fine with me you know it's like you know it doesn't bother me at all so um I kind of leaned to that sort of side of it so drag was always very natural for me too so wasn't really something I had to work too hard at to to kind of pass. So it was kind of an easy thing to do. So for for doing shows and things like that, it was like it was just constant. I mean, I was always working at that time. So um, and then I then I got back into more into doing hair more and started doing wigs more and stuff. I actually started doing that more with Lee because uh, I was the wig buyer. So I would buy more wigs for the store and resupply, and I would style them for customers. He let me do that. I used to do a lot of stuff for Lipsinka early on. In fact, still do. So once in a while. So um, so she would come in and I would do her hairs for the shows that she was doing. So then I started doing a lot of show queens in that scope and did that for years. And then I started doing more theater work and film work and stuff. So like in the nineties, you started. Yeah, kind of, kind of, really, kind of switched over and started doing more um, building and more theater work. So, and and I still do that now. So, but I get to I pick and choose more 
to what I want to do so I don't have to um, I swing on Broadway still um, but with the cane I can't run around as much as I used to so I can do supervisory kind of things more or less but um, but I build a lot because I um, I can build a show ship it out start on a new one and then and building a show is basically building all the hair for that show mm-hmm. doing all the wigs pre-done to be shipped off to do that show so and for um, television stuff, I just do it when I'm called and asked and, and to do it that way. So, But Lee was kind of got me back into doing wigs and hair more. So, and then I did that for Pat, too. I was her wig buyer. Did you, uh, were you like always into wigs or did you just sort of fall into it once you started? I, you know what it was? It was kind of because I was doing hair and at the same time, yeah, I kind of did do a lot more with wigs. Mm-hmm. And um, it was something that, you know, they don't talk back, you know. <laughs> They're a customer that, you know, doesn't really talk back. <clears throat> so, in a way, it was kind of nice to be able to get back to it. So, and I still do it, and I still love doing it. So, mm-hmm. so for years. So, <laughs> see how many more years I've got. So, <laughs> but um, but yeah, I mean, during that time was kind of cool because it was always kind of new. There was always something new going on and something fresh. But when uh, Lee passed away, it was kind of like, we didn't know what to do with the store. I mean, I don't know. Lee passed away in the early 2000s? Yeah, well, I think it was 90. Yeah, it was, wait, let me see. Yeah, it was right after 99. So it was early 2000, 2001, before 9-11. So it had to be 2000. Um, Yeah, and it was very sudden. And we were all working at the store. And so we were all like, what are we going to do? So um, we basically sold as much as we could out of the store. Um, Lee didn't have a lot of relatives. He had a brother who was uh, a preacher who didn't really know too much about Lee's life in general. And he always had, um, he had nieces and nephews that he constantly was always putting money away for. You know, always had a little, you know, money for them at some point, I'm sure that they received. But for the store, his family didn't know anything about it in that regard. And the thing that really, I think, and I, I really think this is what kind of drove Lee to the point where he became as sick as he did because of the stress he was under. It was like his rent tripled in a matter of a couple of years. I mean, it went from five grand a month to 10 to 15, and then they wanted 20 grand. And he just, you know, he just could not see it possible to be able to do that every, I mean, they wanted the rates that they are charging probably now back then and with commercial leases and he had a huge space. So it was like, did BB tell you what she did? (laughs) Well, after we kind of closed the store out, we sold everything. I have actually still some of the mannequins from the store, believe it or not, some of the, uh, the wig mannequins. And um, we, I took the wig stock, wig, the stock of wigs, uh, <laughs> for the store. Kind of, uh, it actually started my business in a lot of ways. And I, we raised as much money as we could to pay off as much creditors as Lee had at the time. And then just kind of locked the store up kind of the way it was but we really all hated the landlord <laughs> and so 
Bibi decided that we were going to put an Italian curse on the place. And she did. We came in one night, did this whole ritual, and we put a big dead carp in the air vents. (laughs) 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 And they didn't rent that place for about three to four years. And it permeated fish in the longest time. (laughs) (laughs) But it's kind of ironic because initially, before the space was actually leased Mardi Gras, it was a club called The Toilet. (laughs) Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> and it was kind of in the same vein as like, um, what was it? The other one's called. Oh God, there was a few of them. The Mine Shaft and things like that, which were kind of like really kind of, uh, well, I very interesting because I remember the Mine Shaft. I'd gone there a few times actually, but it was not. It was kind of more because for us, I mean, we didn't really fit that sort of um, type of clientele that they normally had. So, I mean, leather and, you know, all that, that wasn't our thing. So, although we did wear leather, but we just, you know, bustiers and shit, you know. But uh, but it was kind of like uh, laying in a tub and getting peed on kind of thing. It was kind of S&M-y, kind of like dungeon-y kind of look to it. And, and smelly and dirty and all those things. But there was, they would do some plays there every once in a while too. And um, I actually dated one of the bartenders there for a while. And he was a big strapping guy too, big, big muscle guy. <laughs> but um, his name is Sean. But um, during that time, so he would like, we're having this play, why don't you come bring some of your friends and we'll you'd watch the play and hang out. And he was bartending, so you know, you just bartend for us too. But it was, um, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of different things going on. Even in those places, there was always something going on. So, so that's what Lee's was initially. It was the toilet. It was a, it was a gay club called the toilet. So, <laughs> so after Lee passed, which was very sad for us all and, and for the whole, I mean, there's so many people that didn't even realize Lee had passed away. So many clients and customers and, and things that when they found out that they were very upset. So, because there was no other place like it, and there has never been another one since, so it's quite unusual. Yeah. So, <laughs> do you know where really got the idea to do a TV boutique? Yeah, I mean, there are actually there are, but there are places that you have to drive to. I think there are a couple out in New, New Jersey uh-huh. and stuff that you have to call ahead, things like that. Lee was pretty much all you had to do was buzz, and we'd say we're going to come down and bring you out, and that's the way we, he was a kind of a like a department store on the street pretty much but you had to know where you where he was and you know what he was about to a point so people are always calling every day going is this lee's mardi gras and we get everything from crank calls to you know oh yeah i've been looking for you guys for years or like oh my god you exist you know like i'll be there right away so it was kind of unusual for a lot of people did you ever get hassled by like either people coming in the store or like police or anything like that Never, never from police or anything. Although, Lee had a great relationship with the mob. So, <laughs> and in fact, because nobody else would publish his books and his magazines. So, um, real straight publications wouldn't touch them. So, um, his initially started, like, I think he had, he always said about uh, them as well as that they always treated him with complete respect. And he gave them complete respect. And I never had a, ever a problem 
with the mob who financed his his magazines and oh, stuff so and have them printed. The mob like published drag. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And his porn magazines. <laughs> so um yeah, and they didn't care the fact of what it was about. I mean, as long as he paid them what he was supposed to pay them and got delivery when he was supposed to be delivered. Mm-hmm. So and he always had something nice to say about him. So it was never like a an uncomfortable relationship or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So maybe kind of in the same way that bars did during that time with the mob. Because mm. it was around the same time that Lee started his own business. So so we just carried on for publications with him. Were many like gay uh, bars in the 80s still tied to the mob? Mm. Was it on the way out by then? Probably on the way out a little bit. But I think, I think the Lee kind of thought about it like... They came to me when I didn't have anybody, and they treated me with respect and as a person, and not as something like oh, some deviant, you know, publishing porn magazines for trannies. You know, it wasn't really kind of looked at like that. So he felt like he really got a lot of respect. So, and that's why the relationship really continued. So, did you know who he dealt with specifically? I knew their names, but I never had met them. (laughs) <laughs> Only first name, so <laughs> yeah, they came around about once a month or, or whatever. But always really pleasant, and always really nice, and always very friendly. And they had known Lee for years, decades. So they were always very sweet and friendly to him. So I know we always kind of think of it um, in other regards, but he kind of looked at them like, like yeah, well, they were there when nobody else would would be. And it's like that's how I got things going, and what he kind of what he put in his magazines were not just porn. They were just about, they were about places where they could meet and get things and order things, and and a lot of his stuff he started by mail order, and before there was a store, so he would actually order stuff for for his customers mm-hmm. and ship them to them in brown paper bags and boxes so so and later on I mean even in the store we always did mail orders so there was always a good mail order business like all around the country all around the country all around the world actually so and there were always places there was always magazines calling out there was always um, Tootsie uh, Lee dressed Dustin Hoffman he picked out all of his clothes that red sequin gown from Lee's (laughs) So, I mean, uh, and he was small, so Lee said he was great because he's such a little guy. So everything fit, you know? <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, uh, Playboy would call up at least four or five times a year wanting him to do a story and they would do an expose on the store. And, and a lot of people would want to do that. They'd want to come in and film and stuff. And he would do them, occasionally he would let them do it, but he didn't like to, he didn't like his customers to be stressed out, and a camera stresses them out. So they'd be like, I'm gonna get seen. So so he had more respect for his customers than actually for the fame that it would have gotten him, So or the notoriety. So I think in a way he kinda, he protected them in a lot of ways, his clientele, so. Where did he get his like retail from, like like shoes in larger sizes and stuff like? We would that? have them made oh. every year. The shoe guy would come in, and I, I he I think after the first year, the second year he knew how I was such a shoe queen. So he knew I was into high heels, so he'd be like, "Shannon, I want you to help me, and we'll pick out styles." So we'd have this guy from Spain that would come in and handcraft the mm-hmm. shoes, but he would do it 
on on a larger last, and he would also reinforce the heels with steel shanks. They couldn't snap off. So these shoes were built for 200 pound men, you know, that could take the pressure, you know, so, and they were beautiful styles. He would come up with some of the most unusual, the most daintiest things to the most, you know, hardcore, like thigh high stiletto boot that laced all the way up from the toe to your, to, oh, all the way up here. In mm. fact, in fact, they hurt so much. <laughs> like, and he would always have me try shit on because he would be like, I'm like a size nine. I'm like a nine and 10, which was like, a good average size, you know. Well, now it is the average size. It's like a size nine for women's shoes. It's like the average size. So so for that, it was like he would always like, well, you try it on because I, I can wear really high heels. So I'd be like, okay. And i go, yeah, they feel really good. They feel comfortable. And go, what should we get them in? And, you know, and we'd order. And, and the day the shoes arrived, that was a big day. <laughs> so we'd be stocking shoes. But everything was original with leads. Shoes were unusual. Because he would sit down there and actually order them. But everything else he got from everywhere else. Uh, prosthetics, for instance. Um, they were so used to selling just one to, uh, to women that had gone through a mastectomy that they weren't used to selling pairs. So he would always buy things in pairs. They'd be like, you know, you just increase their business by triple fold. You know, just like by buying, buying two breasts instead of one. So... Yeah, we had all kinds of suppliers and everything. Were there particular kinds of things that sold the most? Oh, yeah. Shoes, hose, hosiery Mm -hmm. was always big. Uh, Prosthetics and corsets. Because we would always get our corsets from England that were the best corsets made. They were always um, denim-lined and satin exterior, and you could really pull them in. The ones that actually give you that real hourglass figure were the ones that we would get. But then there would be the fancy ones that are more ornate. You know, but the the ones that I loved were the black English ones that were satin, real, just not not a lot of, just black satin, not a lot of bows or pearls or any of that crap on it, and just really basic. And I really loved those. So, so we'd order them by the tons and sell out because I could sell them all. So, <laughs> anyone who's like, we'll put you in a corset, and once you got them in a corset, they'd want the corset. So, same with heels. It'd be like. Now, how, who else could you give you a shape like that, you know, but a corset <laughs> and bracelets and everything like that. So, yeah, it was it was really a lot of fun. And, and they, we would get people that were totally shy and others that were just like would run around the store naked, you know, <laughs> they'd be like more like an exhibitor or an exhibitionist than anything else. So um, but, you know, we got everything to straight truck drivers to. Uh, they come in with their wives and shop, you know. Um, so we had a good variety of people. <laughs> and there'd be people that would come clear across the world. To, they'd heard about Leeds and wanted to see it when they were in New York. So they'd come and just buy a crap load of crap. <laughs> Often we'd see them like once or twice a year. Or they'd make their pilgrimage. and So it was kind of cool in that garment. I like that. And uh, some really interesting people. Doctors, lawyers, writers, everything. So a little bit of everything. And some were friends and some were kind of anonymous customers. So, But it was a lot of fun. <laughs> mm. I know Lee's was a lot of fun. Yeah. I really liked him. Yeah, I really did miss him. Yeah, it sounds like he had a like a sort of circle of friends that were all like, yeah. really tight. But Lee was kind of like... Um, 
because when when you are like in your 20s you have friends in your 20s mm-hmm. you know you don't really have too many people that are older around you that could tell you things to do you know what not to do you know things you should do you know so um he was one of the first um you know employers that i had that i had full health and cover health coverage full insurance and and it's not like when you need it in your 20s you know so it was like he made sure that we had you know health insurance that we were covered and he knew things were important and he would make sure he'd go out of his way to make sure that we were so so in that regard yeah i mean he would give you really good advice on things and stuff and he was he he wanted you to make money he never discouraged me from from doing shows or like even though if you come in late you know it's like but i know you this is what you like to do so it was like he made room for that he made it to where you could be a little flexible you know and he knew that i was good with hair so he liked it when i would do wigs and i would do all the displays and everything like that so so in a lot of ways and i would help him because i learned a lot from him in that regard i actually had some of the first connections with wig companies through him so uh, with Henry Margue and Renee Paris and and you know Louis Ferre, I mean all big companies that I actually talked to those people in person uh, once a month at least, but probably more, because they were starting out as companies, but now they're huge companies. So, and in fact, I even named a line of wigs for um, for um, Margue wigs called Incognito. <laughs> He goes, I need a name. <laughs> I go, how about incognito? And then he fucking named his line after that. I'm like, yeah, you should have gave me a check too. Because <laughs> so, I used to order from them all the time. So, And even with Pat's, I used to do that as well. So, But yeah, so I mean, the 80s, I guess, was very eventful and stuff. But I, I continue to kind of do stuff. And I'm not as political as I used to be, though. And I think I want to get more to that again because mm-hmm. with Trump I don't think you have a choice <laughs> I think it's we're going to have to fight for whatever we got to keep and anything we else want anything else we want is going to be hard so so I think it's just starting again mm-hmm. so we'll see <laughs> I hope so well, yeah, let me check the time um it's it's been a couple hours how are you feeling do you want to good I'm kind of running out of breath a little bit is there anything you want to ask do you want to um do you want to just like tell me a little bit sort of like kind of looking back from we've talked up through the 80s and the 90s a little bit like Mm -hmm. some of the things that like seem especially different to you now like compared to the 80s or 90s or well um yeah I kind of let me get some water and yeah of course (laughs) sorry um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of things that I see is how things have changed, really. It's such a change, and I think an attitude has changed, really. Um, I don't know. Are you real connected in social media? A little bit. Yeah? Do you like to be connected into it? Uh, we're back. Uh, so I was going to um, ask a wrap-up question about um, sort of trans life today versus in the past, but I actually, I think... Uh, listeners will want to hear about your experiences with our uh, current president. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I did a few additional days on on The Apprentice a few years back, about 
four years ago. Do, doing just wigs or doing makeup? Mm, doing uh, doing additionals. I mean, you come in and you do hair on um, whoever the additional actors might be. And trust me, all that crap is scripted. So <laughs> just let you know. Um, so I came in to do a couple of days for the additionals. And um, I was actually talking to, um, sitting next to Trump's hairdresser, when we were actually doing the taping of the show, because we have to be on set as we tape. So he elbows me in the ribs and he goes, do you know what we call it? And I said, no, what are you talking about? And she goes, Trump's hair. And I'm like, no, what do you call it? <laughs> and he goes, I call it the onion loaf because I fold it one way, then I fold it back the other. <laughs> and I like kind of looked at him a little in shock and I'm like, I looked over and I'm like, yeah, totally makes sense because it does. It gets folded in every way. And he goes, he also said, it's like, you never want to see it when it's wet. (laughs) (laughs) And I kind of looked, I said, and then I thought about it for a minute. And I'm like, you know, you're right. Because if this was wet, this is long. It comes down like this. It'll be like kind of an odd sort of angled mullet is what it ends up looking like. <laughs> like with a little bang here, like a long bang, it's it'll come down here on the sides and then it drops even further. Because <laughs> this, he goes over the ear, which is really bizarre to tell you the truth. So, but he didn't even get it. He was like, ah, I've been doing it like this for about 30 years. <laughs> he said since the 70s, he's wow. been doing his hair, so... I wonder if he's going to survive his presidency, though, so we'll see. <laughs> I wonder if any of us will. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, is there a, anything that we've you know talk, either talked about or not gotten to talk about that you would especially want remembered? Oh, somebody that I remember that was very No, special. something that you would want people to remember oh. from, your, from your life. Oh, gosh. That... I think I've been kind of lucky in a lot of ways. I've lived a pretty decent life and I've got to do and travel and meet a lot of people. But um, I would just say that you just got to go out there and do it. You can't really let people tell you what you can and what you can't do and how you should be and how you shouldn't be. And just remember that everything out there, there's a place for you, there's a place for everybody. It's a big world, and nobody can tell you how to be it. Live it, and how to be it. So, <laughs> I think you got to make your own mark. And Rue would say, "Screw it, gotta live it, gotta love it. <laughs> Get back to your roots." <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you so much for your time. Oh, sure. I appreciate it. Really thank great. you, AJ. Thank you. <laughs>